according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to encompass Matthew, Mark, and Luke in our study, but Mark is the longest, the most thorough of the account, so we will use that for the basic outline and then bring in the additional details where appropriate from Matthew and Luke. But you can see in the text, Matthew 9, 18 through 26, that's nine verses. Uh, Luke 8, 40 through 56, so there's 17 verses. But in Mark 5, 21 through 43, you've got the uh, longest account of 23 verses in length. So that is where we will spend the bulk of our time. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure each believer priest is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you once again this morning for the privilege and blessing it is to assemble together to receive instruction. We thank you for the faithfulness of your word and for the encouragement that we have as we observe the uh, lessons, uh, not only for the doctrinal content, Father, we clearly we need to hide the word in our heart. It's our sustenance. It's our provision. It's our uh, defense against the, uh, the struggles with sin. But also, Father, the, the stories themselves serve as examples for us to imitate, to follow, to be encouraged by. And, uh, Father, we all can relate to the precious, preciousness of a child and to the, the sorrow of, of losing a child if that was to take place. And, Father, uh, the story we have this morning centers on that very issue. And I pray that, that uh, the full impact and edification of this message would be ours today. And I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We will uh, return to the outline here. However, let's take the time. If you have a harmony of the Gospels, um, we don't refer to it regularly, uh, but we ought to refer to it maybe occasionally or periodically, at least in order to fix our bearings and understand what we're doing. Uh, it's a four-page handout, and I think we might be out of them in the hallway, in which case we'll get more copies made and we'll get that restocked. Um, but we are... About a third of the way down on, no, not quite a third of the way down, a quarter of the way down on page two. So does that give you an idea where we are? If it's a four-page document and we're on page two, are we, are we anywhere near the end of our Through the Bible series? See, somebody thought we said, well, we're halfway, aren't we? No, we're, we're not exactly halfway. Now, admittedly, page four is only half a page. So it's three and a half pages, and we are partway down page two. Uh, just the, the section heading is the introduction of Jesus Christ when we spent some time with the genealogies, the differences between Matthew and Luke and so forth, why one genealogy tracks it through Matthew, uh, I mean through uh, the, the father line, through Joseph's line, that's an adopted line, and then Luke's line tracks the genealogy down through Mary. Then the second section, we actually looked at the birth of both Jesus and John the Baptist, 17 episodes associated there. Uh, the third section, where we highlighted John the Baptist himself, only four items there. And then the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The beginning of Jesus' ministry with 12 episodes there. Now, what we've been doing, that's the last time we ever published notes. And it's been a while now, so people ask, well, we've never had any notes. Not true. We have published notes. We've published them section by section by section, see. So uh, we will be ready to, to release the next batch of notes uh, when we complete the Galilean ministry at which time we probably ought to go ahead and 
release all the previous notes as well, since I'm sure those are no longer in the hallway either. Uh, but the Galilean ministry, as you can see, uh, is really heavy in Matthew, whoops, really heavy in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and uh, not so heavy in John. You'll notice that as we go through the text, as we go through item by item. This one for here, for example, with the raising of, of Jairus' daughter. It's covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John doesn't even touch it. Remember, John was the gospel written decades later, written as a follow-up to the three synoptic gospels, and it really contains uh, largely independent material. But the Galilean ministry is the one that has the most famous of the events. If, if Even unbelievers that don't know a whole lot about Jesus, at least they heard of walking on water, for example. That's during the Galilean ministry. They heard about the, the loaves and the fishes, feeding of 5,000. That's in the Galilean ministry. Uh, the famous parables, like we went through a few weeks back in Matthew 13, that's in the Galilean ministry. The, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. They love quoting that because they think it's, a, it's an anti-war kind of thing, pacifist kind of thing. That's the, the Sermon on the Mount in the Galilean ministry. A tremendous amount comes in the Galilean ministry. In fact, the bulk of the life of Christ's study is in the Galilean ministry. It may not seem like it because a close second is the Passion Week. The final five days are almost as lengthy as the Galilean ministry just in terms of the number of episodes recorded. Not in time, of course. So uh, we've gone through already. This uh, wraps up the first page there where uh, the four become fishers of men and uh, the healing of the leper, paralytic call of Matthew, uh, all the Sabbath controversies from the plucked grain to the withered hand, the Sermon on the Mount, picking of the twelve disciples, the centurion's servant. And you can see now where we are in number 30. Lessons, I see. No, not number 30. Why did I say number 30? I went down an extra page, didn't I? There I am. The raising of the widow's son. Okay, number 30 now. Jairus' daughter raised and the healing of a woman with a, with a hemorrhage. This is where we are. So maybe halfway, more than halfway through the Galilean region. What lesson is this today, Bob? Number 140. All right, this is lesson number 140, and we're doing one a week. So, rapture pending. <laughs> How much longer are we going to be in this series? I can see easily two more, three more years in this series. I can see easily that this is going to be something along the orders of uh, even more detailed than through the Bible, where we release it on a four-CD set or a one-DVD set, where it could have 300, 400 lessons in total for uh, every episode. But you can see 30 lessons out of 56 we're, uh, we're a good way through the Galilean ministry at that point. Things we have coming up, including uh, the second trip to Nazareth, uh, sending out the twelve, John the Baptist loses his head, uh, the feeding of the five thousand, walking on water. Uh, we got a whole lot coming up of things that are very famous, and, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll do real well with those. And I think we'll start to get into a, into a pattern as the, as the Perean ministry approaches where we're going to start knocking out these episodes one per week, one per week, one per week. I think we've, we've done enough groundwork in these early ones where uh, taking two and three and four Wednesdays per episode is going, to, uh, is going to likewise be shortened up quite a bit. The last Judean and Perean ministry has 42 events. And then the final week at Jerusalem, beginning with Palm Monday on uh, the triumphal entry. And look how many episodes there are until the cross. 
40, uh, 40 has the tomb sealed and 41 has the women watching. And then uh, 13 events after the resurrection. So that kind of gives you a, an idea for where we're going on this particular study. All right. For today, though, we are in episode 30 of the Galilean ministry. Jairus' daughter raised. And this is kind of a twofer on this one because he, he, uh, Jairus comes to him and says, hurry, come to my house. Uh, my daughter is either on the verge of death or she's just died and you need to come immediately. And then on the way in between when Jairus first hits him to by the time he gets to the house while he's en route to uh, perform that miracle, um, this woman comes up to be healed of her hemorrhage. And so uh, we'll deal with it here. Now, we already studied points one through three. And we introduced point four. Am I correct? Did I give you point four yet? All right. One through three then. Mark's account is the fullest. So this outline will follow his record with supplementary information from Matthew and Luke. The outline is going to basically follow the order in the Gospel of Mark. With the evangelist formerly known as Legion commissioned on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples returned to the Capernaum side. We don't know that guy's name. I hate calling them Legion because that was the name of the demons and they're cast into the abyss and they're not around anymore. So whoever that evangelist is, the evangelist formerly known as Legion might be Bob or Noel or something. We don't know, Gary. But whatever his name is, he's now ministering on the eastern shore, the Gentile side, with all those other pig herders and, and unclean folk and so forth. Jesus accomplished the one purpose he had for crossing the lake that night was driving out those demons, seeing that guy saved, launching him into his ministry, and then it was back now to the western shore. Back to the western shore. The growing crowds kept him near the water, but Jairus sought him out. And in verses 21 through 24, we read this, when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, so he's now he's back on the first side, the western side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. His movements were hampered. He was limited in what he could do. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. The term there, proskuneo, is usually is our term for worship. And uh, he came up to worship and implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Now, Jairus sought him out. This is one of the things I mentioned last week that I find encouragement by in terms of when the crowds are increasing, when the numbers are getting overwhelming, when your head's spinning and you feel like you're not keeping track of things and you wonder are things getting away from you and, and all the rest, you can rest confidently knowing that Christ wasn't negligent. Christ wasn't negligent in his ministry. And yet these were the circumstances and details he was tested under. And in faithfulness for the father to lay the, those work assignments out and to make clear what it is that uh, that he's supposed to do those ministry opportunities would find him as in the case of Jairus here and so I think we can be a bit relaxed about certain things and not worrying about are, are we are we are we letting things fall through the cracks are we are we dropping the ball on some things see you stay you are as overwhelmed as you are and the father knows that <laughs> and who's really in charge anyway? Is Christ or is he not the head of the church? So trust that if you're staying humble and staying faithful and accomplishing what you are aware of, that the things that you're not aware of, the Father's taking care of that. And if it's something you need to be aware of, he'll make you aware of it. We'll have more to say on that because Christ does a miracle here he's not even aware of in this episode. 
when this woman touches the, the hem of his garment and power goes forth from him, the miracle is done and he doesn't even know it until, it, until it's taken place. See? And so we'll talk about that too. How does an omniscient uh, God get surprised? Well, he's not using his omniscience. He's setting aside those privileges during this time of his humanity. And even then, how do you surprise a prophet? How do you surprise a spirit-anointed prophet of God uh, who typically don't get surprised unless the Father chooses not to reveal those things ahead of time, which was clearly the, uh, the case here. Now, we can do some more here with uh, crowds and whatnot, but we're not going to. The, the ruler of the synagogue, the Archisunagogos, we did some vocabulary study on that. Uh, also, uh, the word on Jairus. Jairus is not a Greek name. Jairus is a Hebrew name that's brought across into Greek letters. Uh, the Hebrew is Jer, and you've got some Jairs in the Old Testament. Uh, there's a, uh, a guy there in Numbers 32 named Jer. One of the judges was named Jer in Judges 10, 3 through 5. He was a judge who had how many sons? 30 sons on 30 donkeys, something like that. We felt sorry for Mrs. Jer last week when we were imagining 30 sons on 30 donkeys. And then uh, there's another Jer mentioned in Esther 2, 5, no big deal, but uh, Mordecai, when Mordecai is introduced, he is Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Kish, and so forth of the tribe of Benjamin. So you get a passing reference to the name Jer in the book of Esther. But Jairus is the New Testament term. Now, as far as uh, his daughter, she's called a little daughter. She's called a, uh, and we don't have as many of these in English, and so we use words like little. In verse 23 of Mark 5, it says, my little daughter is at the point of death. There are other languages that will have words, and then they will have diminutive forms of those words. And, uh, you know, in Spanish, it would be ito. You could have a taco or a taquito, or you could have a burro or a burrito, and you could have that, that little ito ending. And there's more, I'm sure. I'm making an ugly sense of this here. Um, and now I'm highly embarrassed because I just saw Lori sitting out there. Um, so I'll switch to German. I'll switch to German. Uh, or any language. There are many, many languages that have that. English doesn't have so many. I mean, they do exist, but not as many. Um, we tend to just throw a, a, a helping word in there, like little. Say. Anyway, in Greek, this is a diminutive. The, the basic form is thugater, T-H-U-G-A-T-E-R, thugater. This is your basic form here for daughter. And when you shrink it down to thugatrion, that's the diminutive form. So it's a little daughter. It's a baby daughter. See, like I told Zoe the other day, I don't care. When she's 30 and married, doesn't matter. She's still going to be my baby daughter because I've only got two and Zoe's the baby one. See, so no matter what else happens, she will be the Thugatrion. And that's the term of endearment that uh, Jairus uses here when he's quoted in Mark chapter 5. She's also called the Monogonese. The monogonese, she is the thugater monogonese, the only begotten. If you don't know any other Greek word, well, you should know a few. You should know charis for grace and agape for love. But monogonese is so vital because this is the King James only begotten. Monogonese. This is the John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his monogonese, his monogonese huias, his only begotten son. This is the only time in Scripture that we have only begotten monogonese that's attached to a daughter. But the only begotten, monogonese. And we're hampered by that King James because the idea of begotten is not appropriate for, for genese. Uh, begotten is appropriate for ganao, to give birth. 
but it's not appropriate for genos, meaning kind. And so monos, genos, only kind, a one of a kind, a one of a kind son. God so loved the world that he gave his one of a kind son. And if I can repeat that a hundred times between now and New Year's, maybe it'll sink in and we can overcome uh, the, the 1611 Elizabethan language of only begotten. All right. The one of a kind son. Isaac is called the monogenes. And he is not only begotten. Ishmael was born 16 years before Isaac. And then there were seven other sons that were born after Isaac, the seven sons of Abraham and Keturah. So Isaac was one of nine boys that were fathered by that were begotten by Abraham. So Isaac's not an only begotten son, but he is a monogenes huios. He is a one of a kind son. He is the one son of promise. He is the one son of the miraculous birth in terms of the reopening of uh, Sarah's womb and in terms of the the, uh, covenant that then was uh, bestowed through him. So monogenes is a passionate term. This, This whole miracle here is centering on the tenderness of parental love and the uniqueness of this child's death. See? And we had a similar thing with the raising of the widow's son at Nain. That widow's son was also a monogenes. He was called monogenes, huios, in that passage. So, obviously, this is a frame of mind that hits Christ pretty hard, wouldn't you think? It would be something that would, would go right to the core of his being as the monogenes son of the universe, as the one who is preparing to lay down his life according to the Father's plan. And so these were the issues that we introduced there. Now, on the way, en route to Jairus' house. You ever think about things that are on the way? (laughs) You think, well, the real ministry was at Jairus' house, wasn't it? En route to Jairus' house. The Lord bears fruit without even identifying it ahead of time. The Lord bears fruit without even identifying it ahead of time. All right. Stop to consider. Uh, You made a decision to come to Bible class. And so here you are at Bible class. But what did you do on the way? Say, well, I didn't do anything. I just drove. Got mad. (laughs) Because that's Austin traffic. See, minimum two confessions between home and church. Unless you drive 183 and then it's three or four confessions between home and church. Right? No, think about the en route. Because does ministry ever stop? Is there ever a time out in the Christian way of life? You have the opportunity to bear fruit in a variety of places. Things that you don't even think about. Uh, you're headed home from church and, you, and, and your wife says, you know, can you stop at the store and get milk? You don't even think about it because it's just something that's on the way. Big deal. But there's a witnessing opportunity in the checkout line. Or something else happens in a parking lot or somebody else happens, you know, you have another conversation that takes place on the way and you don't even think about it. But it's these as you go kind of ministries that's the core of the Great Commission. Because the core of the Great Commission is as you go. Everybody, I mean, how many missionary reports or or evangelist sermons or whatnot when they say go because it's the first word in Matthew 28, and, and they never get past go by the end of their hour when the imperative is make disciples. And that the word go is the aorist participle that's the attendant circumstances as you go. 
wherever you go. Say, if, when you're at work, when you're at school, when you're in the neighborhood, wherever you are, you're going there, there you are. As you go, make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them and so forth. But the as-you-go participle of the Great Commission is not, is not the imperative. It's the attendant circumstances. And that's highlighted here, as you go. He's, he's on his way to Jairus' house. And as he goes to Jairus' house, there's work to be done. And he's doing the work. Now, there's a woman in the crowd. We don't know her name either. We can call her 12-year hemorrhage lady or whatever. We don't know this lady's name. A woman in the crowd appropriated the power of Christ for her own need. A woman in the crowd appropriated the power of Christ for her own need. And we can see this. uh, Verse 25. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. How old was that little girl? 12. How long has she had this hemorrhage? See, this is not coincidental. These stories, they seem like they're not related, right? And endured much at the hands of many physicians. (laughs) Yeah, Dr. Luke kind of glosses over that. This is Mark's record now. Mark records how hopeless those ridiculous doctors were. I kind of like Mark. And uh, spent all that she had and was not helped at all. You know how broke people get going to doctor after doctor after doctor, grasping after any last thing? Now, legitimately, she has a need. I don't, I don't fault her for what she's done. It's just describing how hopeless this whole thing was. And uh, part of the, the, the metaphor here, if you want to think of the, and I hate, I don't typically allegorize things, but the, the, the message here, if you think about after you've done everything you can through human effort, where are you? Broke and hopeless. <laughs> Which is really where you were in the first place, before you expended all that human effort. But you finally, sometimes you have to get there before we confess it or admit it. or Because uh, prior to maybe trying everything in our flesh, we still have a pride thing that says, oh, I can handle this. But she's just as broken, just as hopeless as she was 12 years ago. The passage, though, is uh, giving it some pretty vivid description here. Uh, she was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. So for all the money she'd spent, she was worse off than she was when it first started. After hearing about Jesus... She didn't hear him directly. She heard about him. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. That's her thought process. Now, she developed that thought process based upon hearing about Jesus in verse 27. And immediately, verse 29, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. So the miracle took place. And Jesus didn't do a thing. He was walking by. She reached out. She touched the hem of his cloak. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd. So notice the perfect tense of had gone forth. In other words, it was after it had gone forth. It was after it accomplished its effect. That's when his, his mentality, the mentality of his soul, that's when he understood that the power had been triggered. Not before and not at the time, but after it had gone forth. He, uh, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Who touched my garments? Now, he knew that the power had gone forth 
and he knew that it was by virtue of the garments being touched. We'll touch on this here just a, oops, we'll address this here in just a moment. Um, because I think there's, there's more we want to we examine on that. But let's finish the point on the screen. A woman in the crowd appropriated the power of Christ for her own need. Notice, the power was there. And she appropriated it. She appropriated it. I think there's uh, some things here that we want to glean out of this. Christ was the object of her belief. And the value of that faith was not in her work, but in his merit. The value of that faith, it only has value because the object is appropriate, because Christ is the object of the faith. Christ was the object of her belief, and the value of that faith was not in her work, but in his merit. Is this making sense? Because you can believe a lie, but that faith is worthless. Because not because of how you hold it, or not because of how fervently you hold it, or not because of how much you do in believing the lie. I mean, look at how fervently the, the Mormons bicycle around town. And they knock on doors. And they talk to people. And you know before they ever knock on a door, they have had hours and hours of training. The Jehovah's Witnesses have minimum 100 hours training before they knock on any door. And if you try to debate them, they're ready for you. Because they've been grilled. Absolutely grilled. And you can show them the most perfect passages on earth. And they're ready for them. Because part of their training is ready to accept those hostile passages you throw at them. See, so they believe a lie and they fervently work towards those ends. Muslims that believe their lie and go blow themselves up thinking they're headed to the 72 virgins. They fervently believe those lies and they have these works of belief or these works of faith. But they're worthless because the object of the faith is the wrong object. Christ is the only appropriate object for our faith. So the value is not in her work, but in his merit. But now notice the triggering of this power came as a response to what? How was the power triggered? To what she did, to her work of touching the garment. Correct. Jesus didn't even know it was taking place when that power was triggered. All right. Secondly. Every medical avenue had been explored. We looked at that already in verses 25 and 26. Every medical avenue had been explored. And with information regarding Jesus, she made an application of faith. Every medical avenue had been explored. See, we're not negative on doctors. In James 5, when it talks about uh, uh, going to the elders and praying and so forth, that anointing with oil there is the medical procedures of the day. We should use the legitimate medical procedures that are available. Matter of fact, I mean, goodness, consider where we live. Consider the, the medical treatments that are available in this country that are not even available in, in most other places around the world. How could we not redeem those grace provisions? What kind of uh, spitting on grace do you think it is if we just reject the, the provision that God has blessed this nation with in, in terms of those things? So uh, there's nothing necessarily wrong with applying the... Uh, uh, or exploring those medical avenues. She did so, uh, as I mentioned, James 5. Let me just grab that real quick for you. It's verse uh, 14. That anointing with oil is the medical procedure of the day. And then, of course, prayer along with that. So there's nothing wrong with seeking the legitimate medical avenues. 
But with information regarding Jesus, she made an application of faith. She never heard him first, first person, firsthand, but she just heard about him. And based on that information, well, well, think what were the things she would have heard. She would have heard what? That he performed miracles. That he was teaching, he was a teacher sent from God. Those were the stories that were spreading around. And so she comes to understand, like the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. She said, I know that Messiah is coming. They had an expectation of the coming Messiah. And this woman made that application of faith. Having heard what she heard about him, she concluded that he was the Christ. She concluded that all she needed to do was touch his garments. And she'd be fine. That was an application she made. Would, would, you, would I have come to the same conclusion? I, I don't know. Depends on how much faith I would have had. I might have said, well, touching his garments isn't going to do me any good. I actually need to stop him. I need to stop him and talk to him and worship him and tell him how much I love him and, and, and ask him if he could heal me. Some of the, some of the uh, lepers will do that. They'll say, son of David, if you're willing, you can heal us. You know, and, and, and so that's a certain degree of faith, isn't it, to, to approach him and verbally ask for healing based upon your confidence that he can do it. But is it even more of a degree of faith to say, you know what, I don't have to bother him, I don't have to touch him, I don't have to interrupt him, I don't have to ask him, all I need to do is just touch these garments and I'm going to be healed. Now, why would that be? Is there an Old Testament story that might give credence to that? Is there, is there something in her doctrinal understanding that would say, you know what, this is, this is going to be sufficient? You know, um, there was a story in the Old Testament about a dead guy, and they threw him in the grave, and he touched the bones of Elisha. And what happened? He came back to life. And Elisha certainly wasn't aware of it. Elisha wasn't even there. His bones were there, but Elisha was long dead. See, woman had faith. She assimilated some Bible stories and put it all together and said, you know what? The power of God's right there. I don't need to bother him. Also, I shouldn't be touching him anyway because I'm unclean and he's a prophet. Another part of her thinking here. But she made an application of faith. Now, we haven't gotten to the word faith yet, but it does come in verse 34. Um, in verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. So it's not just my opinion here this morning. It was a statement of Jesus Christ. Your faith has made you well. When she touched his garments, it was an act of faith. It was an act of faith. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Thirdly, her condition made her ritually unclean. This is, in my thinking, this is the, the likely reason why um, she did not speak to him. She did not touch him personally, but rather his garments only. Her condition made her ritually unclean, Leviticus 15. You know, this bleeding issue is a problem. Ritually speaking, I mean, beyond the health issues. Leviticus 15. Imagine what it's been like for this lady for the last 12 years. She's, she's never been to the synagogue. Never gone to the temple. Never offered a sacrifice. Because she's never been ritually clean. For these last 15 years. Or 12 years. She's had uh, time to read the Word of God at home and learn some things, but never uh, participating in the assembly of the saints. Leviticus 15, um, 
if you're having babies or the monthly menstruation or uh, even sexual relations within marriage. And, and, and these are all these things aren't sinful. Say you're not sinning when when your menstruation comes around once a month. You're not sinning when you're having sex in marriage. You're not sinning when you deliver a baby. But the circumstances of the fluids leave you ritually unclean, ceremonially unclean, Levitically unclean. If you want to use the word Levitically that way, at which time uh, you are not consecrated to uh, the Father's holiness there. So there's a lot of this here in this chapter without reading the whole chapter. The um, Because see, other things can become unclean as well, including clothing that you wear. Um, so verse 19, if a woman has a discharge, if her discharge is a blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days. Whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything also on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean and everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Notice until evening. What happens in evening? Sun goes down and it's a new day. Remember, there's evening and there's morning one day. So sun goes down, it's a new day. And uh, as long as you don't touch her again, then you are ceremonially clean and eligible for uh, feast or sacrifice or assembly and, and uh, the other functions of their, of their uh, Old Testament worship system. And then, of course, if the man actually has intercourse during that time of the month, then, that's, uh, then he has to actually, uh, he doesn't just get the clean status at evening. He's, he's out for the seven days, same as she is. Uh, verse 25, now if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, see, and this is above and beyond the, the normal monthly deal and, and uh, is describing it here. Uh, beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge, she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity she is unclean. So for the entire duration, not just for seven days, not just for a week, not just for that time of the month, but for the duration. For this woman, now it's been 12 years. 12 years. Similarly, you know, there's the bed, there's the clothes and the things like that as well. So her condition leaving her ritually unclean, She's only willing to touch his garment rather than to touch him, although he um, will use the same, he will use the same, uh, and this is a figure of speech, who touched my garments or who touched me. Um, you can say the same thing. If you look at Mark chapter 3, we do the same thing in English, right? If, if somebody touches your clothes, you can say they touched you, right? You know? Touched you through your clothes, but you touched you. Um, Mark 3.10. This has been uh, a previous, and this may be also something else that she'd heard about. In Mark 3.9, he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. He was already in the boat uh, teaching Bible class and was so crowded there on the, sh on the shore that uh, he had a hard time ending Bible class or getting through the crowd which is why they just said, okay, pull up anchor, let's cross the side of the lake. Um, but notice, he, uh, they were crowding him, for he had healed many, with the result that those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. In order to touch him. So 
This was a common belief that just touching him would result in their healing, whether he was doing the touching and exercising the power or they were using the touching and appropriating the power and so forth. The crowds were gathered to be healed and they could be healed by simply touching him. And this woman now in chapter five, having heard all that or heard about that, had the faith to believe that that was going to work. And it did work. We see that it did work. The point under D, and I think it's kind of the bottom line of this whole episode. When God the Father works in and through us for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13, we don't even need to know what's happening. When God the Father works in and through us for his good pleasure, we don't even need to know that it's happening. Now, if we do know, and great, all the more we can praise him. But if we don't know, Great. Because your father who sees in secret will repay. You may not even be aware of the fruit that you're bearing. When the father works in and through us for his good pleasure, it's Philippians 2.13. If you don't have that memorized yet, I'd encourage you to put that on a refrigerator somewhere. Philippians 2.13. It, it really helps take the pressure off. <laughs> if, if you think it's all up to you somehow to get something done. No, you're not the one doing the work anyway. It's the father who's at work. Both to will, that's mental attitude, and to do, that's the actions of his good pleasure. And so when the Father's doing that, do we need to be aware? Uh uh. Nope. And uh, I like the way when you, if you don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, we got these principles here that not only do they assist in bearing fruit, but they also assist in maintaining humility, in keeping a perspective. So that you don't get so full of yourself and all of the things you're doing. <laughs> and, you know, God has says, okay, I'm not going to let you get carried away with pride on this because I'm not even going to let you know what's going on. And isn't that a blessing? That's why I love our website so much. I love the way that, what the website does. You know what the website does? It sits there. <laughs> it sits there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It just sits there. And we don't have any idea. And people from from uh, all over, we've gotten a few. We've gotten some occasional emails, like uh, and just enough to remind us that that's why we have it there from Botswana and from uh, Ireland and different places. And uh, and and so we get occasional emails here and there, so at least we know somebody's using it. And we get the we get the stati- the monthly statistics, so we know how many thousands of hits and millions of hits and things each month. But the neat part is, is that it's there and we, we're clueless. The Through the Bible notebook just sits there. People download it, take it, start using it. And that's great. That way, fruit can be born and, and we're oblivious. Christ gets all the glory. And that's the way it ought to be. So if you're not familiar with uh, Philippians 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, here we go. This is a part of the humility issue in uh, the fact that you're supposed to have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, and the whole impact of that then being one of humility. Then further down in verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. That's a humility application. 
you know that the Christian way of life is genuine when it's done in private, when it's done on your own uh, volition, on your own uh, without these other motives, like trying to impress people. Ooh, Paul's around. We better we better make sure we're in church. See. You know, a guy that's real excited about coming to church. Well, is he excited about coming to church or is he just interested in this girl? And does he go on to the church because that's the only reason she'll date him? See? Well, the big clue, if she stops dating him and he keeps coming around, well, that's, that's, that's a clue. <laughs> Guess what? He's here for the teaching. He likes the Word of God. But if the moment they get married, then boom, he's out the door and never comes back again. You think, well, hmm. What was that in the first place? Why was he coming to church? What was he interested? Was he interested in spiritual things? What was happening there? See, I like the fact that when I was 13 years old, my parents moved to a house uh, was right across the street from our church. And so then it didn't matter if if dad was working late, which he did most nights, or if uh, mom was sick or whatever, if we didn't have transportation, get to church, didn't matter. Just walk across the street. There it was. And so as children, Matt, Mary and Elizabeth and I, we had to make that decision ourselves did we want to go to church and and was it just because our parents were making us go or that we had to go or because we wanted to go see and it was uh, a tremendous opportunity so when it says in verse 12 philippians 2 12 so then my beloved just as you have always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is god who is at work in you both to will that's the mental attitude the desire, that's bulamai, when we study that, and to work, that's the doing, for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. And this is what Christ is accomplishing here. The Father's accomplishing it through him, and Christ wasn't even aware of it until the time when it was done. So, uh, Mark 5, 30-32, Luke 8, 45-46. This gets to be a little comedy here, and I hope it's on DVD where we can watch it. The... Uh, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, Who touched me? You know, they are so packed in, right? Absolutely packed in and everybody's jostling and bumping. It's like a Kiev subway or something. It's just packed out. And, and there's everybody you're just bumping and all this other stuff. And, and if you ever go to Kiev, hand on your wallet or keep your... I hung it on my neck under my shirt because, man, all that jostling and bumping and stuff. And there were some hands reaching in pockets. They found empty pockets. But these crowds are here. And he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, well, we did. We all did. Everybody did. Everybody's touching everybody. We're, we're packed. And they fail to understand what he's really talking about, which is typical for the disciples. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling... Aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, here's this opportunity. He didn't know about it at the time, but he wants to learn about it afterwards. And she's able to come and to testify, to celebrate. And he's able to celebrate with her. See, and those are those are positive things. They're they're encouraging things. Came and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. Now, the Luke account is pretty close to math to marks luke 8 i think the language might be a little bit more vivid uh she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her hemorrhage stopped 
Luke actually uses the technical term for the hemorrhage. And Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone did touch me, for I was aware that the power had gone out of me. Again, had gone out of me, perfect tense. He became aware of it after it had gone out. Then when the woman saw that she had not escaped, notice, say, she fully intended to disappear. Fully intended to appropriate that power and not bother Jesus Christ. But she had not escaped notice. She came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately helped. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Interestingly, she gets to go in peace while Jairus' house is full of chaos. The woman left in peace, but Jairus' house was full of chaos. My old first sergeant would call it a bug palace. He'd uh, only put up with it for a certain length of time. And then he'd say, Bolander, go get the Humvee started. We're, we're out of this bug palace. Didn't like to stick around in a place with chaos. I'll stay in Luke for the moment. Um, after he says, uh, go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the house, the synagogue official came saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. All right. She's dead. There's no point coming. You know, if he would have just gotten here sooner. Now, <laughs> this is going to come up only more so with what? With Lazarus, right. Only there he's not going to miss by a few minutes or a couple hours. There he's going to miss by four days. Here he's just missing by, oh, man, missed it by that much. You know, if I hadn't stopped to talk to this lady, I could have been there maybe. But I stopped, I talked to this lady, she touched me and the power went out. Is that what he's going to blame it on? No, it's not too late. We didn't miss anything. The father assigned me a resurrection miracle today, not a healing miracle. Or maybe both. I did a healing miracle here. I'm going to go do a uh, uh, resuscitation miracle here in a moment. And notice, though, do not trouble. Do not trouble the teacher. Is it trouble? Is it a bother? People say, well, you know, Pastor, I would have called you and told you that I, I didn't want to bother you. Yeah, you know, my wife was having a quintuple bypass surgery and, and, uh, and a liver transplant. And, and, uh, but I didn't want to bother you. You didn't need to know about any of that. You got enough on your mind. The point is, is it's not a bother. You think it's a bother. But to Christ, it's, it's, it's a work assignment. Christ loves to do the things that his father sends for him to do. So it's not as if the ministry was a bother because of the request people make. The ministry is a blessing because of the assignments the father gives. And so it's not a bother, it's an assignment. And Christ wasn't bothered by it. So stop bothering the teacher. The disciples have the same thing later on. Uh, these kids are approaching and they try to shoo the kids away and say, don't bother Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, bring those kids here. You disciples step aside. You guys are bothering me. <laughs> right? Well, look at that too. Anyway, this house is full of chaos. And he, when he heard this, he says, do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. This is before he even gets to the house. 
He comes to the house. He does not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James. Now, this is going to start to become a pattern as well. We haven't seen this up to this point, but we see it here. We're going to start to see it more and more. Uh, It's only those three that go to the Mount of Transfiguration. It's only those three that are praying with him in Gethsemane. Uh, He's starting to he's starting to narrow down in uh, certain things that he's showing to even the twelve. See, there are things that he's not showing to the nine. You know who the nine are, right? They're the twelve that aren't these three. Okay, Peter, James and John are being shown the most. And then even out of those, there's one who's the most intimate. And that's John, the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Even when Peter was confused on things, he turned to John and said, John, what's he talking about? Okay, so obviously, as uh, there's the there's the multitudes, there's the crowds and then there's the twelve. They have the most amount of information they're provided. But even among the twelve, nine of them don't get nearly the intimacy that these three get. And even within those three, there's the one in terms of the beloved disciple. So he takes these three in and the girl's father and mother. And they were all weeping and lamenting for her. Here's some of the chaos. Weeping and lamenting and gnashing of their teeth. And it's just a hysterical circumstance. When you enter into a home, there might be nightmares or tragedies or it could be horrible things going on. But if at least if they're believers with some kind of doctrine, you'd think that we can sit down and pray together and, and examine it with some divine viewpoint. Let's get back to Mark now with this. Mark 5. And uh, while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid. Only believe. Now, you have those little words in italics any longer. Any longer, do you see that in the New American Standard or whatever else you're reading, NIV? Let me pull this up. Because, oh, I don't even have Logos running yet. Okay. Um, What's happening there is you're having a present imperative that's negated. The idea is that the activity is taking place and he wants it to stop. And so when he says, stop worrying, stop being afraid. There's a difference between saying, don't do drugs or stop doing drugs, right? In, in, in the first, you haven't even started in the, in the first place, so we say, don't, right? In the second, okay, you've already started, so stop right here, right now, right? We say the same thing about uh, sex prior to marriage. We say the same thing about a lot of things. Don't do it, or okay, now you're doing it, fine. Stop doing it, confess, get back in fellowship, and that kind of thing. Well... We use the words don't and stop or don't any longer. We put the words any longer in there and that conveys the sense of something that's already in progress that you want to come to a stop. Okay. And in technical language, as far as the Greek is concerned, what I'm describing here at this moment is the difference between a uh, present imperative and an aorist imperative when you negate them, when you make them a negative. And all a prohibition is, is a negative imperative, you know, don't do this. So the difference between a present and an aorist in your negative imperatives is the difference between something that hasn't started yet. And so we're saying don't, don't ever, don't even start or something that is ongoing and we want you to stop it immediately. And that's the tense that we have here. It is ongoing. 
The fearfulness is ongoing. So stop it. Stop it right now. So do not be afraid any longer. Stop being afraid. Only believe. What is it that casts out fear? Perfect love casts out fear. And how does that come about? By faith. All right. So he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion. <laughs> Chaos. Almost like, uh, you know, Sunday school class or something. With you now we're getting a handle on things, which is good. I had an episode two weeks ago, but there have been many lessons learned because of that. And uh, I think tremendous benefit is taking place. Uh, commotion, people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child is not, has not died, but is asleep. Okay? And Jesus didn't turn into a poet there in a moment. It, it rhymes in English. It just uh, doesn't rhyme in Greek. Um, so they began laughing at him. They began laughing at him. What kind of crowd is this that laughs at Jesus? There you go. That's right. Well, Sarah laughed at him. Abraham laughed at him. Um, interesting to think about, isn't it? The uh, flute players and the noisy disorder. I won't go into it, but Thorubeo and Thorubas, they're fun word studies. Um, we won't tackle them this morning. Thorubeo is the verb, 2350, and Thorubas is your noun, 2351 kind of fun in their own in their own right um there's uh there's always an occasion in it when misery loves company when people say hey let's go launch into some hysterics here and then uh use the excuse of the occasion for uh demonstrating how much we care and we can show them how much we care by how much we weep and wail and so forth in fact it was so accepted in the ancient world that they would hire people they were professional mourners these people were very skilled and the one the ones we have in the bible are all women but i think there's there's men that do this too that are attested in in other literature uh but the ones we have in the bible are all women that do this they're, they're professionally paid whalers and you pay them and and it's a mark of how much you really lament based on how many you can afford if you can only afford two or three whalers then you know you're not making as an impressive uh, demonstration of your, your love, respect, and esteem for the dearly departed. But if you could pay for 20 whalers to come in and just moan and go on and on and play the flute with these dirges and these other things, um, that's why the flutes were there. The flutes were there for the funeral dirges and stuff. Um, the more you could pay, people would look at you and go, man, that person really loved that dead guy or whatever, Okay. So anyway, there's there's some things we can do on that. We won't. Uh, why trouble the teacher? The verb is scullo. S-K-U-L-L-O, scullo. I just like it because it sounds funny. Scullo is the word for trouble, bother, uh, to be um, to be a nuisance. To be a nuisance. But it's not a bother. Not a bother at all. The miracle was only to be witnessed by two parents and three disciples. The miracle was only to be witnessed by two parents and three disciples. There's teaching that's going to take place. 
Now, the first one he rose from the dead was in full public view at a funeral service at Nain when, when they, he stopped the funeral procession and brought him back to life and he climbed out of the coffin and went about his business. This one, though, is going to be in private. And only the parents and the disciples here are going to be in view. I think, uh, well, we're approaching the top of the hour. There's, um, when you talk about capacity, when you talk about the purpose for these things taking place, you start to wonder why was it that only these three would come to pray with him in the garden? Why was it that only these three come up to the Mount of Transfiguration? What is it about these three that he's preparing them for more than the other nine? See, more than the other nine. And is it a capacity in their walk, in their maturity, in their doctrine? What is it? And I think um, we're going to explore this more when we get to some of these more subsequent uh, issues. Um, so we'll let it go at that. Talitha kum. Little girl, arise. Little girl, arise. And I think I spent about two or three days on just this phrase because this is, this is uh, an Aramaic expression that's then brought into, uh, that has a Hebrew cognate that has uh, a Greek translation here, a Greek transliteration here. He says, Talitha kum. And so for this, as we look at Mark 5, the, um, down in verse 41. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. You can say a lot in two short words, can't you? <laughs> Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, get up. It's like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, nine words in English, four words in Hebrew. It's the, it's the economy of language that keeps, that's so vivid in these things. Um, how much of this do I want to get into? In any event, these aren't Greek words. These are Hebrew words, or Aramaic words that uh, get brought across in the Greek New Testament as Talitha Kum. Talitha Kum doesn't mean anything in Greek. Um, it's just the transliteration of the Aramaic. It produces what we have in Luke's record, Takorasion soi lego agere, which is what we have in the second part of verse 41. Little girl, I say to you, get up. And Korasion uh, is another diminutive, like we had the diminutive earlier of Thugatrion. Here's the diminutive here, Korasion. This ASEAN ending here is your diminutive of Kore, of, of female, woman, girl. Korasion, soy lego, egera, the imperative here to get up. In each resurrection miracle, they are commanded by way of imperative. And I find that interesting. I don't know that I can explain it. But I say to you, get up. Now, they're, they're not expressed in the sense of Jesus stretched out his hand, which he does, uh, and, and he um, lifts her up. And if we, we read the Matthew account, it says that he takes her by the hand and she gets up. But here we have the imperative, get up, like Lazarus, come forth. Well, he's, his, his cadaver's in the tomb, but he's being, he's being um, commanded. So how does Lazarus obey that command? How does this girl, we don't know her name, but this little girl, how does she obey this command? 
because it's a command being issued. And then you'll notice the girl got up. The girl is the subject of the verb got up. She accomplished the activity of the verb and began to walk for she was 12 years old. Immediately they were completely astounded. Interestingly enough, the nature of Christ's resurrection, he was given authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. Who raised Jesus from the dead? I got verses that will tell you the Father did it. But I got verses that will say that he rose himself from the dead. The explanation being, the explanation Jesus gave, that the Father had given him that authority. See, so the Father did it, but he did it by giving the authority to Christ, who then rose from the dead himself. The demonstration of his victory over death. So in these cases where physical life is resuscitated, it's coming about because the authority is being granted. He says, little girl, arise. She has the authority now to, to uh, quicken that cadaver and to return back to physical life. We discussed this last week. These are not resurrections. This girl is not being transformed into a resurrection body in glory. In, 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 she, she will die later on. She's being restored to the physical earthly life in this physical mortal body and she will live out her days accordingly, which is part of the metaphor for sleeping. Uh, her soul, she died. I believe, though, that her soul wasn't carried away into Abraham's bosom like would normally happen to a believer. Uh, I believe that she died, her soul departed, and the angels simply held it there while she was sleeping until she was given that imperative to, to rise. All right, the last issue here. The miracle was not to be published, but it was. <laughs> All right, I'm going a little long, but I wanted to wrap this up. There's not enough to deal with next week. The miracle was not to be published, but it was. He gives these strict warnings. He gave them strict orders. That's why he left the nine outside. That's why he left the flute players outside and all those other guys. And he only took the parents and took the disciples. And for all I know, the only reason he took the parents was just to have witnesses there, <laughs> right? That, uh, you know, smart move. That's my policy. If I'm around unmarried women or daughters or kids or whatever, get some parents around. Get some, uh, you know, get a husband there, somebody there to observe all these things. There's no accusations of, of nothing. Uh, but he says, don't publish this. He gave strict orders that no one should know about this. Don't tell anybody about this. Well, why is that? It's a pattern you're going to see increasing and increasing and increasing the closer it gets to the cross. The closer he gets to the cross. Well, it gets published anyway, and great uh, stories start getting spread. Um, over time, I'm already four minutes beyond. There are two subpoints to this, but we will tie this together next week and then return back to event 31, which is the restoring of two blind men. Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 9. And uh, we're getting ready for the sending out of the 12 and passages. On, uh, I really would like to focus on them, not only for this study, but to consider the sending out of the 12 and what that pattern was like, what that training was like, and how do we imitate that in our ministry workshop? How do we imitate that in the evangelists that we train, in the pastor teachers that we train, in the uh, exhorters that we train, in, the, in, in every gift that we're tra training, all 11 gifts. And when we train them and when we send them out, where do we send them? How do we send them? How do we support them? What is the philosophy of training underlying these, uh, these 12 guys here? And if we can pattern the Austin Bible Church, uh, whatever we call it, 
uh, Bible college, Glenn called it the seminary, Austin Seminary of Biblical Languages. Whatever we call it, the pattern is right there in the training of the twelve. And uh, I'm going to have fun with that when we get there in a couple of weeks. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this study. We do ask for your hand of blessing upon us. And, Father, uh, to keep us ever mindful that we have work to do, not only in the things we're aware of, but we're, we've got work to do when we're not even aware of it. People, When people are watching us, we are maintaining the witness of our lives, and we don't even realize many times how effective that ministry can be. So, Father, I thank you for that, continuing to lift up this holiday season and the family gatherings that are scheduled and uh, the opportunities for ministry that will present themselves there as well. Father, it's in your hands, and we thank you for it, that you're the one who's at work, both to will and to do, of your good pleasure. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.